0: Welcome back to Volume 3, entitled Murder in the Garage. By now, if you've stayed with us for both the first two volumes, you probably wonder how unimaginative I possibly could be when Shard, in the second volume, discovered the murdered victim in his garage, and now suddenly I've got another murder in the garage. To be honest, this one has kind of a neat background. It arises from an actual murder. My uncle was murdered in 1949 in upstate New York, and his body was discovered in his pickup truck parked in a summer home's garage in the summer home at Christmas holiday season. The summer home had been closed for three or four months. The question was, and it was never answered to my satisfaction, was the garage locked from the outside or not? It never said in the newspapers. And I asked my aunt numerous times, and she would never answer. She never said no, she never said yes, she wouldn't answer. If, of course, it was locked from the outside, it was murder. If it were locked from the inside, or not locked at all, then it quite possibly could have been uh, suicide. In any event, the case was never solved. The rest of this volume has absolutely nothing to do with that murder. The the murder victim in this uh, volume uh, had a much different life than my Uncle George. But, the important thing is, in my volume, here, that you're going to listen to, Shard solves Uncle George's murder, and he does it using thousand-year-old medieval Scandinavian manuscripts spoken to him by Johnson. So, let's get going. It's Volume 3, Murder in the Garage, and the first chapter is entitled Murder Setting, and this is where we meet the corpse. We meet Skabinski and Patsy his gender-confusing dog. Doc Fox is in fine fettle as usual, the Kaiser hates a dead political contributor, and King Harold weighs in. This has to be the worst Christmas Eve of my life, Stephen Harkness said aloud to himself at one o'clock in the morning as he drove his white SUV down Leiden, New York's back roads. He thought about his women problems, more screwed up than ever over his long, tangled romantic career. He wondered how many men hated their wives. He realized that he hated Gloria for years. Really hated her. And she knew it. But he didn't love Deborah much either. Oh, she was cute enough, he thought, and terrific in bed. But he wanted something more. Gloria had to choose Christmas Eve to demand that he break up with Deborah. She said that if he didn't do it tonight, she'd divorce him and take every cent he owned. It wasn't like he didn't have enough financial problems already. He was keeping the two most expensive women in the state. He was paying for their houses, and now the condo Gloria had bought when she moved out on him. The truth was he realized he'd like to dump them both at the country club's holiday cocktail party. He'd eyed Nancy Teeter in that light green sheath that left little to his imagination. Too bad she was married, he thought, but then I, that might be a good thing too. She wouldn't nag him to get divorced or marry her. Married women were much more safer. He thought maybe he ought to look at this strictly as a business proposition. Who would cost more to get rid of? Gloria? Deborah? Definitely Gloria, he knew. But he'd have to go through the public humiliation of the proceedings that would cost him face in the town that he practically owned. And then there were those damn grasping lawyers who take more of his money than Gloria. Deborah, on the other hand, would be easier and cost a lot less. Maybe give her the house, the Lincoln, and the jewelry he'd bought her over the years, send her off and tell her to have a good life. But then he'd be stuck with the woman he hated rather than the one he liked. At least a little. Jesus, what a choice. The problem, he decided, was that nobody understood him. He was lonely. Nobody loved him. Least of all his wastrel son, Harold. If he were younger, he thought he'd find some young thing and make another son. One who would appreciate him. Nobody seemed to understand that he never wanted all the responsibilities that were killing him. He didn't ask to inherit the paper mill. He didn't want to be responsible for the livelihoods of 20% of the town's workers. He didn't want to sit on every board in town. He didn't want to be the deep pockets for every two-bit charity in the county. No wonder he felt tired all the time. Nobody could enjoy life with the mill thing hung around his neck. That place gave him more problems than women did. The company was too small to compete much longer with the giants in the business. His only course would be to merge with a bigger paper firm. God, but his attempts to do so were disastrous, he thought. Nobody wanted a merger. They wanted to swallow him like a whale, one with huge jagged teeth. He couldn't even get his own managers and union leader to back him on the one merger idea. They were all too scared of their jobs. It didn't help that his company books were a mess, probably criminally so, and he couldn't open them for anybody's examination. He had to fire his treasurer, he thought, but that would make his job even tougher. The phony books, at least, claimed the mill was still profitable. Real ones might not. And then the whales would just chew his company up and not even bother to swallow it. To top it off, the lousy run of luck at the crap tables had cost him a hundred thousand dollars and it was a backbreaker. It wouldn't have been quite so bad if he'd had the money, he rationalized. But having to give Charbonneau, his chit for the for the money, really hurt. He didn't think the gambler would sick his goons on him any time soon for payment. He was too important it was being beholden to the fat bastard that really hurt. He turned off the driveway and said to nobody, I have to end all this one way or the other, tonight. Monday, five days later, Lieutenant Thomas Shard, the 40-year-old chief of the Mohawk County Sheriff's Department detectives, settled his six-foot plus frame into his favorite chair and contemplated with pleasure the nearly four fingers of Highland Park single malt, the perfect antidote, he thought, for a cold winter night in upstate New York. The whiskey prompted an irresistible urge to smoke. He went out to the kitchen where he opened up the vanilla wafer box and shook out an unfiltered camel. He'd been trying to quit for four years, ever since his live-in girlfriend, Hope, who had tried to get him to stop, suddenly left him for a drug salesman, a guy who didn't even have Shark's dark curly hair and inviting blue eyes. Shark had quit carrying a pack around with him when he and Hope were together but he had secreted emergency cigarettes in places he frequented. Later he found he couldn't break the habit of hiding them either. The phone distracted him from thoughts of hope and his addictions. Lieutenant Shard. Neil Lieutenant. Do you work the desk 24 hours a day, Neil? No, sir, but I have a body for you. Route 28 in a camp's garage. Who found him? A local who lives in the woods and watches the camp in the winter. Any ID on the body? No, sir. Okay. Call Johnson and Periwinkle and tell him to meet me at the office. Where's the camp? Guy at the grocery store in Black Lake said about a mile north of his place. Got it. Oh yeah, Rouse knocked Fox out and sent him up there too. Gotta confirm that the corpse is dead. Put some cotton in your ears when you call him, he isn't going to be happy. Thirty minutes later, Shard pulled up next to a dilapidated pickup truck in which a man and his dog sat with a motor running to keep warm. When the dog spotted Shard, he yapped and clawed at the window. Shard prudently approached the other side and said to the driver, "'He's one protective dog. "'She's a girl. "'Name's Patsy. "'And you are?' "'John Skabinski. "'Where do you live, John? "'Head of Black Lake. "'You find the car in there?' "'Yep. "'When?' "'About an hour ago. "'Did you touch anything?' Skabinski frowned. "'How'd you think I got the door open?' "'That's not what I mean. "'Did you touch the body or anything inside the car?' "'Why would I?' been hunting for 60 years. I know if something's dead. I'm sure you do, Shard said as he shone his flashlight across the barely perceptible tire tracks that led into the garage. You spotted those? You've got good eyes, John. Yep. Patsy snarled as if to emphasize Skabinski's assertion. I'd like you to stay a few minutes to talk to my deputy. Shard stepped into Skabinski's footprints that led up to the garage. He liked a few minutes alone with his victims. He wanted to take in the scene, to sense the mood around the body. He noticed, for example, that the SUV had been recently washed. Whoever owned it was fastidious. He walked to the driver's side and tried to see through the tinted windows. Because the driver's door was closed, he realized that Skabinski was a careful, perhaps compulsive man. Shard opened the door gingerly so as not to disturb death and leaned in to look at the man slumped over the steering wheel. He appeared to be in his 50s, well-dressed in gray wool, herringbone, sport coat, white shirt and tie, none of which were must. Shard couldn't see any evidence of foul play or blood, and his first inclination was that the man had driven into the garage, closed the door, and left his motor running. Such stupidity was unheard of in the North Country. Every year, somebody drank a belly full and tried to sleep it off in his garage. He'd never understood the compulsion— although he suspected it was probably the same impulse that prompted drunks to snooze on railroad tracks. His speculations ended when he noticed that the key was in the off position. Dead men didn't turn off motors, he thought. His sergeant, Newt Johnson, brought him back to reality. What have we got here, boss? A middle-aged man who appears to have died a neat, tidy death. See if you recognize him. I can't because I can't see his face. As Johnson leaned in, Sergeant Sharon Periwinkle came into the garage. Boss, why do we always get these calls in the middle of the night when it's colder than the proverbial well digger's elbows? Seems that way, doesn't it? I don't think I know this guy either, boss, Johnson said. I can't see his face without touching him, but he looks pretty prosperous. He sure kept his car clean. It's as neat as a pin in there. Shard hated clichés, even his own. A SUNY Albany English professor had soured on them years ago. Shard didn't rise to Johnson's provocation. Take a look, Periwinkle. I know you've only been back here five or six months, but you might know him. Johnson, the guy who found the body, John Skabinski is out there in his truck. See what he knows. Watch that dog. She's possessive, and it's a bitch. Skabinski seemed touchy about that. Get his address and let him go. Periwinkle withdrew her head from the car and said, I don't know him, boss, but he dresses well. He didn't buy that coat here in Leiden. Did you see what killed him? Nope. The car is as neat as a pin. Much neater than mine. He was neurotically clean. This must be the night to bury me under clichés, or worse, the same one, Shard thought, as the sounds of a rattletrap trap vehicle grew louder. That must be Doc, he said to Periwinkle. She winced, knowing that she'd have to stand in the snow up to her knees and endure the usual palaver. Shard thought Doc's 1953 Chevrolet pickup looked much older than it was. Doc spray-painted anything that pretended rust, and it looked like it had a bad case of the measles. In the winter, the cinder blocks in the back shifted and made god-awful crunching sounds that warned everyone within earshot that he was abroad. The old Chevy wheezed to a stop next to Skabinski's truck. Doc wore his hairy, liver-brown sport coat that resembled Skabinski's dog, and he sported an uneven stubble punctuated by an ever-present cigar butt stuck to the corner of his mouth. Nobody had ever seen him light one. Rumors were that he bought boxes of butts to save money. Glad you could make it, Shard said. It wouldn't be the same without your congenital cheerfulness. Besides, we have a well-to-do victim, who must be a friend of yours. I can't afford to run in your circles. Lieutenant, if you did your job, I wouldn't be out here in the middle of the night slogging through this crap. You can't even keep Leiden's criminal element at bay in lousy weather. Hell of a cop you are. And besides... The guy's in the SUV. Looks dead to me. Take a look. Doc glared at Shard as if he were personally responsible for the victim. He looked in the car for what seemed to to Shard to be a long time, and then observed, It's my professional opinion that I do know him, and he's dead. Beyond redemption. Can't do a thing for him. Yep, he's profoundly dead. You know him? Sure, everybody who's anybody in town, Lieutenant, except Sheriff Stutzenberger's deputies, knows who he is, Stephen Harkness. The Harkness who runs the paper mill? Perry asked. No, the Harkness who owns the paper mill. The Harkness who employs half the people in the county. The Harkness who chairs every civic board in Leiden. The Harkness who's the town's social lion. The Harkness who never beat me at checkers. That Harkness. And remember my second point. He's dead. D-E-A-D. Well, that clears one question up, Shard said. We wondered if he was really dead. We needed a medically trained professional to tell us. And a fine training it was, Lieutenant, at a real university, light years superior to the one you attended at SUNY Albany, and that preschool industrial training you got at the State Police Academy. But then, you were a Catholic, so we can excuse your poor choice of colleges. Shard wondered what he meant by that. And now you're going to ask me what, Doc asked, interrupting Shard's train of thought. How long has he been dead? I don't know. I don't know why you think I always know. Do I look like God? Periwinkle couldn't suppress a laugh. Shard and Johnson were tempted to join her. If God looked like Doc, Shard thought, it would set religion back a millennia. What's so funny, Fox asked Periwinkle. Nothing, sir. Okay, we've established that you're not God, but do you have an idea of how long he's been here? Shard asked. I'd say at least three days, maybe one or two more, he replied without his usual half grin. What makes you say that? You're supposed to be a detective, but judging from the tire tracks, I'd say the car came in before the last storm. And remember, my information is free of charge. Many thanks, Shard said. But why add a day or two before that? Easy. I was at the country club's Christmas Eve party with him. He was very much alive then. Is that the last time you saw him? Yep, but you haven't asked me how I recognized him when the three of you super sleuths couldn't. Okay, Shard said. I'll bite. How'd you recognize him? That coat. He was wearing it at the cocktail party, and I thought that if this one ever wears out, Periwinkle chortled, Doc's hairy coat had worn out before the Korean War, I'd ask him where he got it. It would look great on my svelte body. Doc was as short and stubby as his cigar butts. One more question, Doc. Have you any idea what killed him? My guess is that he died of heart trouble. How'd you figure that? We all die when our heart stops beating. Doc said without more than his usual half grin. What stopped his heart? That's another question. We'll know when I get him on on the table. I'll take a look at him tomorrow morning, say, nine o'clock. Doc knew Shart hated autopsies. That's why he always scheduled them near meals. I'll be there. In the meantime, your boys can sweep the scene and get Mr. Harkness over to my shop. The back door is unlocked. I lost the key to it. And I want to thank you, Lieutenant, for getting me out on this bracing night air. Otherwise, I might have wasted my time asleep under a couple of my great aunt's antique quilts. God forbid that I should be warm, Doc said as he ambled with an uneven gait towards his pickup. You know, guys, Shard said, old Doc was in pretty good spirits tonight. Tuesday morning, in Shard's office. Shard claimed his desk chair. He had only two in his cramped Spartan office. And since Johnson and Periwinkle spent a great deal of time there... The last arrival was sentenced to to perch on the upside-down wastebasket that someone years ago had painted an institutional pea green to match the color of the office walls. Shard lifted a corner of the worn, matching green rug and picked up an unfiltered camel, nice and round, just the way it was meant to be. Periwinkle appeared and proffered a cheery, "'Morning, boss!' as she slipped into the other chair. She was one of Sheriff Ree's case, Stutenberger's better hire.' Shard thought. The Kaiser, Shard's guess at what the case stood for, was an excellent judge of people. A college graduate, she had come to Leiden after her father's stroke to help with his care. She was bright, enthusiastic, and almost beautiful. Tall, slim, and crowned with waves of the most beguiling auburn brown hair, she made his day every morning. How was your Christmas, he asked. Fine. Did you stay here? Most of the time. I finally unpacked all the boxes and settled into my apartment. It almost feels like home now. How's your father? About the same. Therapy helps, but he still can't walk unaided. His doctors are hopeful, though. Go out with any bikers? Periwinkle looked at him as if it were an unfair question. She was sorry she told her co-workers that she had once dated a Harley man. They hadn't believed her until she mentioned that he was a chemical engineer and computer geek who taught her all manner of devious computer ploys. Periwinkle hesitated and said, No, but I did have a couple of dates. Good for you. Shard couldn't decide whether he was happy or envious. Anyone I know? He's a guy in my mother's list of Catholic boys I should date. She and his mother fixed us up. He hated the idea as much as I did, but we had a good laugh over it. Turns out he's a pretty nice guy, and we've gone out a couple of times. Shard noticed that she hadn't answered his question. What's his name? Donald Bolton. Don't think I know him. Well, I'm not surprised. He moved here just before I did to take a job at North Country Paper. Yeah, what'd he do over there? He's a production engineer. I don't know what that is, but I guess he engineers production. Periwinkle was saved from further inanities when Johnson breezed in. Oh, God, not the wastebasket. Yep, Periwinkle said, and Shard replied. As Johnson adjusted his anatomy to the unfriendly contours, Shard said, I have three messages for you that came while you were living the good life over Christmas. Johnson looked up expectantly. Shard fumbled around in the mess on his desk and pulled out a sheet of scratch paper. Number one. Candace Fortner, December twenty-two. Please call me back. Number two, Candace Fortner, December twenty-third. I really need to hear from you. Number three, Candace Fortner, December twenty-seventh. I gotta see you. I really do. I'll come up to Lydon. Call me. You want me to read them again? Johnson recalled Candace easily. She was the hairstylist in Smytheville. In Smythville, he had interviewed on, on the Landry case a few months earlier. She had come on to him so frontally, both literally and figuratively, that she had embarrassed him. He had confessed to Shard and Periwinkle that the piece of fluff, as everyone in the office called her, had cured him of chasing women. I never called her. I told her never to call me at work. It's unprofessional. I doubt that will stop her, her, Shard said. She's attracted to your mind and your interminable recitations of the Norse sagas. Johnson's Norwegian grandfather had raised him on the Viking tales that became Johnson's Bible. He rarely missed an opportunity to quote a snippet he thought appropriate to the situation, sometimes much to his colleagues' dismay. Eager to change the subject, Johnson said, I don't get much out of that woodsman last night. Johnson said, I didn't get much out of that woodsman last night, but he sure is a character. Do you know that he doesn't have a phone? I'm not surprised, Shard said. He didn't know Harkness, but that's not surprising. Skabinski's in the firewood business. When he saw the tire tracks... He thought that the fosters, who own the house, had been up for the holidays. Later it dawned on him that they never come up in the winter, and if they had, they would have written him to turn on the heat and prime the water pump. So he decided to check. It's odd that he didn't seem shocked when he found the body. He's been hunting all his life. He's used to death, Shard said. Yeah, but dead people? Look, I, Shard said, I've got to go over to Doc's to watch him carve up Harkness. I'm already late. I want you two to hit the street to see what you can find out about Mr. Harkness. But be discreet. He was a powerful man. I'll see you back here a little later. To fortify himself, Shard crossed over to the cast iron street lamp in front of his appliances and brushed the snow away from its base. He unscrewed the nut on the service door near the bottom, pulled out a plastic bag, and took out a camel. Although Lady took his time, at least Doc never dawdled over his autopsies. He went in, found what he was looking for, and got out. Nevertheless, Shard hated to watch Doc disassemble bodies. Around his ever-present cigar butt, Doc said, I know time means nothing to cops, but mine is valuable because I have all that professional training. Morning, Doc. Before we get to our Mr. Harkness, I can tell you what killed him. You can? What? A sharp, ice-pick-like thing about eight inches long, right into the chest, from the front. Neatest little hole you ever saw. Almost no blood, instant death. Let me show you. Doc led him into what Shard called a cave, because the mold green room had no windows to relieve its gloom. Harkness lay on his back, covered with a sheet. Doc was neurotic about his patient's dignity. He pulled the sheet down only far enough to expose a small, neat hole, just to the left of Harkness's breastbone. Nice job, huh? Either the killer was a professional or damn lucky. The pick went right straight in. He didn't have to stab him fifty times. I see that, Shard replied, unable to appreciate fully its neatness. You can leave if you want. That's what killed him, no doubt about it. I'll check everything else and send you one of my always thorough and thoughtful reports. If you translated it into English, I'd be grateful. And I'd like to know if Harkness was drunk when he died, and whether he was taking something or smoking anything. Doc backed away with an incredulous look on his face. How do you think I ascended to this exalted position, Lieutenant? On my good looks alone? No siree. I did it the hard way, on my intelligence, and the fact that my father was president of the city commission. I always check that stuff. And if you can translate my report correctly, maybe I'll let you challenge me to a game of checkers. That was an honor Shard didn't need. Everyone knew that Doc was Mohawk County's checker champion. Shard didn't stand a chance against him. He felt sorry for Chet Hundley, the uh, Leiden's mailman, who had to play Doc every day before he would accept his mail. Worse! Doc made out drink of a cup of his almost un coffee. Anxious to get out before Doc switched on the saw, which reminded Shard of every painful dental procedure he'd ever suffered, he bolted from the cave and walked up Tilden Avenue to Patel's, where he bought four donuts, two coffees, to go. He had skipped breakfast. Tuesday morning in the Kaiser's office. When Shard walked into Batdorf's jewelry store, Patty Batdorf was leaning over the counter counting stuff. Shard always wondered why jewelers took inventory hourly. If there were that many shoplifters in town, why hadn't he heard about them? Hello, beautiful, he often called women beautiful, and made them feel good, and covered up the fact that sometimes he couldn't remember their names. Patty looked up with a big smile. Shard thought she was one of the sweetest women in town. She had stayed in Leiden to help her parents with the store, and now it was hers. Pear-shaped, she looked exactly like all the Dorfs, except for her long, graceful fingers. I'll trade you two donuts and a cup, a cup of Patel's best for a, well, you know. She threw him a fake scowl, and from under the 20s in her old-fashioned brass crash register, she took out a camel. I just got out from an autopsy, Shard said, to explain his need. Patty pointed towards the door. She wouldn't let him smoke in her store when it was legal. Now he couldn't smoke anywhere. He ignored the law in his office. The Kaiser didn't mind or maybe didn't know. O'Reilly, the barkeep at Schuyler's, Shard's watering hole of choice, let everybody smoke. He once challenged Shard, "'Who's going to report me, you? "'Before or after you finished your cigarette?' Neil, headquarters dispatcher, caught Shard as he walked in. "'The sheriff wants to see you. "'Weren't you on duty last night, Neil?' "'Yeah, yeah, I called you, remember?' "'That's my point. "'Don't you ever go home?' The sheriff won't let me. He's holding me hostage. I catch hell for eating up the overtime budget, Shard said. Now I know why. You live the high life on it. I rarely work the graveyard shift, lieutenant. My wife doesn't like to be alone at night with the kids. Shard could believe it. He thought Neil had something like eight kids and probably another couple on the way. Shard climbed the three flights to the Kaiser's office. His secretary, Warden, Hilda Bluter, guarded the front door. She was tough. Looked a little like a bulldog and was loyal to Stutzenberger and knew everything that went on in the department. It's nice that you saw fit to make us a visit, Lieutenant. I've been looking all over for you this morning, Hilda. Glad I finally found you. She didn't crack a smile. The sheriff wants to talk to you. That's what Neil just told me. I hightailed it up here as soon as I heard. She tossed him a look of disbelief, I'll bet. Stutzenberger, as always, was stuffed into his oversized chair Hands clasped over the top of his more-than-ample stomach, his walrus mustache twitching just a little. Shard couldn't tell whether he was pleased or not. His boss was a master at masking his emotions. "'Nice weather today,' Shard said, but looks like another storm on the way. The weather was always a safe topic. The Kaiser's office was crammed with meteorological instruments. "'The glass is holding steady for the moment, but we're due for more snow tonight.' This has been the third worst December for snowfall in the county since 1889. One more good storm and we may break that record. Shard was sure the Kaiser would love nothing better. Bad weather always improved his mood. He loved fronts, high or low. It made no difference. Shard had warned his sergeants that during the summer, when the infrequent high-pressure system stalled atop Leiden and kept the weather pleasant, the Kaiser was always out of sorts. "'Why didn't you see me this morning to tell me "'that you've been on the Stephen Harkness murder?' "'I left you a note, "'and I had nothing to add to it until about 20 minutes ago. "'And what did you learn 20 minutes ago? "'He was murdered with an ice pick. "'One thrust, from the front, straight into his heart. Doc figures instantaneous death.' "'The sheriff shifted his bulk and glanced at Abe Lincoln, "'nailed to the wall across from his desk, "'sure signs that he was about to say something useful. "'Harkness was a friend of mine. "'He belonged to the country club.' and we often met socially. Plus, I'm sure you're aware he had a lot of political influence that was useful to me. Yes, sir, Shard said. When did you last see him? Kaiser thought a moment. At the club's Christmas Eve party. You didn't see him anywhere afterwards. At church, maybe. Stutzenberger was a stout Lutheran, and although Shard guessed somebody named Harkness probably wasn't, it was worth a stab. Harkness was an Episcopalian. You better ask over there. No, I haven't seen him since then. How long do you think he's been dead? That's what I'm trying to figure out. The tire tracks predate the last storm, so that's at least three days. You and Doc haven't seen him since Christmas Eve, so if he died that night, it would add another two days. But we haven't been able to confirm that. The cold weather made it impossible for Doc to narrow the time of death. The Kaiser twiddled his fingers and stared at Abe. One small piece of evidence is that he was found wearing the same sport coat that he wore to your Christmas Eve party. That might indicate he was killed right after the party. I don't know about his clothes, Stutzenberger said. I do know that he was an important man here. This is going to be a high-profile investigation. The Sun-Times people have been all over me this morning, and I have put off a news conference until four this afternoon. At least now I'll have something to say. Shard appreciated that one of the Kaiser's more enduring traits was that he never required him to attend these press gatherings. He shielded his deputies as much as he could from outside pressures. Faced with a strong opponent in the upcoming election, Shard feared his boss might make an exception this time. I suppose you know, the Kaiser said, bringing Shard back into the room, that Harkness is one of my biggest supporters. He'd already made a hefty contribution to my campaign, and I knew I could count on him for more. He appreciated that we keep a tight lid on this town. Some of his employees are not the most upstanding citizens. Shard only half-listened, and in the far reaches of his mind, he wondered why nobody was upset that Harkness was dead. Skibinsley looked at him as a dead meat, just like the animals he shot, probably all year round, and Doc hadn't shed a tear either. The Kaiser appraised Harkness's death as a blow to his campaign coffers. Something was very, very wrong. How long have you known Harkness? About ten years since he took over the company after his father died of lung cancer. Yeah, just about ten years. What kind of guy was he? Nice enough, I guess. We're the same age, but we didn't go to school together. He went to a prep school. I forget where. He graduated from Dartmouth. I remember that. And was working at the mill when his father died. I think he was forced to take over the business before he was ready. What makes you say that? Well... The sheriff could stretch one-syllable words to record lengths. He never really grew up. Know what I mean? No, sir, I'm not sure. Well he was what we used to call a playboy. Maybe he rebelled against his daddy who decided Steve would grow up, inherit the mill, and all its employees, and play an active role in Leiden's civic affairs. I don't think he was ever given a choice. Was he ever in trouble? Not that I know of, but I'll bet if you look at his record here or in Hanover, you'll find some mischief and maybe a few DUIs before they were serious offense. He drank a good bit, even after he got older. Was he married? Twice. Divorced the first one. The scuttlebutt is, this marriage is in the rocks, too. This is all clubhouse rumor, you understand, but I was told that she had moved into a new condo development on Route 12. At least she was there when I called to break the news to her about Steve. What's her name? Gloria. Did Harkness run around on her? The Kaiser shifted again, flexed his thick fingers several times, and rearranged them just as they had been. He looked at Abe for approval. It's just rumor, but the guys at the club tell me he had a mistress. I don't know who, but I believe them because he's always chased skirts whether married or not. Was Gloria at the Christmas party? I couldn't help but notice her in that dress she had on, but they sat apart at dinner. I don't know if they came together. Well, that's something I'd like to know, Shard said. Was there valet parking at the party? Yes, there's always for the club's big events. Shard made a mental note to send Johnson out to talk to the guys who worked the lot that night. What about Harkness' kids? He had only one, Harold. Harold? Geez, Johnson will love that. Do you have any idea how many Harolds and Harolds infest the in Norse sagas? And he knows every one of them. That's all we hear about until we solve this thing. Then solve it fast, Stutensburg grinned under his lip bush. Does Harold inherit the whole shebang then? Shard asked. I presume that Harkness wrote Gloria out of his will. We'll have to check on that. I hope the kid doesn't. He's a bad one. His father just played around. Harold works at being a 'er ne'er-do-well. How so? Harkness never said much to me about him, but I know he ran Harold through every prep school in New England, and he washed out of them all. He must have graduated somewhere, though, because Harkness got him in his alma mater. I don't think the kid stayed a semester. If you can't last a couple of years raising hell up there in the woods, you're a bad seed. Every time Harkness mentioned him, he prefaced it with, Harold called to tell me that he was in some place like Bermuda or Hong Kong or Nepal or Monte Carlo, anywhere life was fast and far away from his father and his mill. Harold's somewhere in his mid-twenties, and if he inherits the company, I predict he'll bankrupt it in 24 hours. Is the mill profitable?" As far as I know, Harkness said that the newsprint prices have never been higher. I took that as an indication all was well. Why? Have you heard that they're in trouble? I'll be the last to hear, Shard said. But if Harkness was, he might have done something stupid and run afoul of some dangerous folks. I haven't a scrap of evidence for that, but people don't kill Leiden's leading citizen for no reason. The murderer didn't even take his Rolex. Tuesday noon, Shard's office. Shard's stomach reminded him that he'd missed lunch, and he found it odd that Stutzenberger hadn't mentioned food. He must be really worried, Shard thought. He raised his office curtain and squeezed gently along the hem until a camel appeared at the end. Johnson strolled in and dropped into the other chair. "'Before you tell me that you found nothing out about Harkness, I want to bounce something off you,' Shard said. "'Sure, boss.' "'Harkness was murdered, right?' "'Yeah.' "'Somebody stuck an ice pick in him, in case you haven't heard.' No, I haven't, he paused. That reminds me of the story in King Harold's saga when Harold was bragging about his magic banner, his standard, that he called Landwaster. Can't this wait? No, 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 no. He bragged about it to Sven while they were drinking. But Harold didn't trust Sven, so he put a log in his bed and slept somewhere else. That night, Sven rowed over to Harold's boat and sank a battle axe into what he thought was Harold's head and fled. What does this have to do with paper mills and ice picks? Don't you see? No. Explain it for us non-Norwegian morons. What's the source of Harkness's power? Why is he so important? Why is it the press all over this case? It's his paper company. It's his magic banner. And the last time he was seen, he was drinking with Doc at the party, right? With Stutzenberger, too. Ah, more evidence. But Harkness didn't put a log in his bed. If he'd read King Harold saga, he'd be alive today. The difference between an ice pick and a battle axe isn't that great. King Harold's saga makes the case much simpler. All we have to do is find out who's like Sven and Leiden. see? Johnson sat back with a self-satisfied smile. Before you regurgitate another saga to explain your last one, let me go back to before Sven so rudely interrupted me. It's the ice pick. He didn't stick it in himself. Therefore, someone else did. If he killed him in a garage, how did he get away? There's only one set of tracks. But if Harkness was killed, say, in a country club parking lot, how did the killer get the body to the garage? Either case, he'd have to have two cars, hence two people. You see the problem? Sure, boss. And the answer is? Beats the hell out of me. I hadn't thought about that. Neither have I, Shard said. It just occurred to me on the stairs. But because I worry about your mental athleticism, I'll let you think about it, okay? I always favor becoming more mentally athletic. Ah. So the first exercise is, how would you find out how the killer or killers managed it? Johnson wondered, why does he do this to me? He's already thought it through. It would be easier if he just told me. I hear your Nordic mental gears clanking, my Burmidgey man. Tell you what, I won't say a word until I finish the cigarette. All you'll hear is the sound of my stomach growling for a plate of Miss Olandowski's hash or beans and francs. Johnson stared at his feet as if he just discovered he had a pair. Then he looked up into Shard's deep blue eyes. I'd do exactly what the Norwegians... Shard's countenance drooped towards his rumbling body. Not the damn dead Norwegians again. Listen, every winter the king sent their herdsmen north to collect tribute from the Laps, who weren't stupid. They knew the Vikings were coming and ran away. The Norwegians hired lap trackers to hunt down their taxable lieges. I'd do the same thing. Good idea. Leiden is chock full of lap trackers. And while on the subject, I didn't know you were so sensitive, or should I say racist. What? Nobody calls them laps anymore. Not even the Scandinavian guidebooks. They don't like it. They're Sami. You've got to get current, but go on. The mountain man's a tracker. I'd take him over to the garage to see if he finds anything. Brilliant, my boy. Really, get out there and have Skandowski. "'Skabinski?' "'Whatever. Do it this afternoon. "'I have it direct from the Kaiser that we will get more snow tonight. "'Even Skorbowski won't be able to find anything. "'And take the department's camera with you. "'We want proof of tracks. Scoot!' "'Skabinski. He's probably Polish.' "'Well, for sure he ain't Norwegian,' Shard said as he motioned Johnson towards the door. "'Oh, yeah. When you get back, stop at the country club "'and find out who parked cars at his Christmas Eve party. "'If any of the guys are there,' Ask them if Harkness and his wife came or left together. I need times for both of them. Right, boss. And Johnson, ignore the women in the bar. They're all related to Candace. The Norseman glowered as he left.